So my message to everybody is you're only limited by your imagination and your faith in yourself and your faith in what God can do for you. I'm telling you, I'm a guy that started in a one station volunteer department in, in, in nowhere, America. And Alan Brunacini to me was larger than life. And guys like him and others uh, paved the way and I want to do the same for others. I want others to come to me and say, hey, how can I, I've had a lot of guys, hey, how can I write a book? How can I teach a class at FDIC? How can I write an article? How did you do this? And I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you can do it. Don't be intimidated by the size of FDIC or if you don't come from a big ass department, that doesn't matter. What matters is you have a passion and you have a gift and, you, and that gift is your passion. And if you can teach and you are passionate about what you're doing while you're teaching it, people will come to you. Excellence is a rarity, but you are not alone. Talk and shop with Outlier Firefighters. Alright, good evening everyone. Alex Tanner here, uh, Outlier Firefighters. This is Talk and Shop with Outlier Firefighters, episode 18. I'm here with uh, Anthony Castros, Battalion Chief from Sacramento, California. I know, a little out of our normal window here in Illinois, and I'm really excited to have you, Chief. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight talking about a lot of stuff, so thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, brother. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and uh, we we've been green rooming, and I know that this is going to be a lot of fun tonight. So, uh, yeah, let's just roll right into it. So, your okay. first exposure to the fire service, what was it? My first exposure was my brothers. Uh, I was born in 1969, and my brothers were 15 and 18 years old when I was born. And the weird thing is, they're still 15 and 18 years older than me now. I never can catch up to those jerks. But um, they were. They were in the fire service by the time, by about 1972. Uh, my brother Demetrius, I was three years old, and he's starting his fire service career at 18. He's a volunteer in Carmel, California, which is one square mile. Uh, it's on the central coast of California, about two hours south of San Francisco. That was my first exposure. Was about three years old, hanging out at the firehouse, and then my brother Mitch uh, followed in suit. And they were volunteers for a few years in the in the early to mid 70s, and then Demetrius got on. Um, in 1976, his first paid career job. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time, formative years, in the Carmel Fire Department Volunteer Firehouse. And like I said, one square mile. We had uh, we had an American, two American La France twin sister pumpers. They were awesome, 60s era open cab pumpers. Um, there was an old, old Mac in the back. Uh, there was a utility rig and an old Cadillac ambulance that looked like 1969 Cadillac ambulance looked like something out of Ghostbusters and they were volunteers and they were they were BLS so they were all a bunch of EMTs and I was there the night in 1975 they took possession of their newest rig their 1975 crown telesquirt which is a 50 foot telesquirt with the open cab and the big crown front end Johnny and Roy all the way and so that was it man I was I was, it was born and in, born into it born and bred and, and haven't had a chance to even look back and didn't want to that's awesome yeah, it was great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what better way to get exposure than family, right? Well, well, and the other thing, also, they were pyromaniacs. So Demetrius would light cardboard boxes on fire in my backyard, and I'd go put them out in my Tonka trucks. And literally, I would play with my Legos in the house, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he had this little bell, and he'd run in with this bell. If I heard that bell, I knew I had, a, I had an alarm. And so I'd go running out. There'd be a big old header in the backyard. All these boxes are burning. And I'd, I'd sit there with my, my uh, snorkel, my little Tonka snorkel that had a connector to the hose and uh 
I had one SOG, man. It was basically one elevated master stream on everything. <laughs> you know, it was awesome. Yeah, that, so that, awesome. that was it. That was it. And um, on top of that, you know, later on, I got a second truck, uh, and that was an open cab little Tonka, but it didn't have a, a waterway pre-plumbed like the Snorkel did. So I had we had to my brothers boosted some O2 supply tubing, and we ran a waterway up that. So that I had two rigs. That was my new SOG. Was two elevated master streams. Man. That's and then I brought else. back, I brought back into service a, a, a 1953 Mack Tonka that my brother had. Actually, it's up in my office right here. I'll show it to you in a minute. But uh, um, it was my brother's in the 50s, and now I hear I was in the 70s playing with it. And I called out my reserve rig, so it was parked behind the other truck in my little fire department in the backyard. And I brought that sucker out and, and you know put it put a guard hose on that, so they had three master streams. It was awesome, but I didn't save crap. There was no Rick James back then, man. It was uh, no two out, no ICS even. It was just freaking surrounded drown. Hey, that's yeah, awesome great. though. Laying that all coffee early. at six <laughs> years old, it was great. Yeah, I, I definitely. We were talking a little bit before, you know, about growing up kind of in a firehouse, and I do remember, oh, man, I was thirteen, I think, with the yeah. first cup of coffee, and it was like, all right, kid. No, no, no. You don't get sugar. You don't get cream. That's not how this works. Drink this. Yeah. I don't think I drank exactly. coffee for another five years after that because no, I was like, oh. No, no. It ruins your gut. You're like, what the hell is that? I know. That so, firehouse yeah. coffee is something else, uh, man. Oh, it's <laughs> you can clean parts with it. You can you can, you can can do all kinds of stuff. With yeah. Oh, awesome. you're stripping paint with that stuff. Stripping paint. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, then how did – so your career path. So where did you start? How did you end up, you know, where you are now in, in – uh, so I turned 18 years old, and like my two brothers before me, I signed up to be a volunteer at Carmel Fire Department, and I was a volunteer there for three and a half years, and um, rode the, uh, the, the next generation BLS ambulance, and, and uh, you know, Carmel's a kind of an affluent town in, in Central California, so a lot of elderly calls, uh, hips, just hip fractures, falls, a lot of cardiac, a lot of strokes. So you actually got pretty good experience. And once in a while, we had a pretty decent fire in town. So it was pretty awesome. But, man, that was just – I just hung out there all the time, you know. And then I was uh, going to school, getting get my – I got my MT early. Um, and then uh, running all those calls and building some experience. And then I started volunteering at another department down the street, which is both of them at the same time. So the other one was called Mid-Carmel Valley Fire Department. And that was about five miles away from Carmel. A bunch of little volunteer departments all over each other. And so I was, I was volunteering at two departments at the same time, uh, going on strike teams in the summer. So for those of you in, in Illinois, a strike team is where you go on big fires, <laughs> big, big, big ass fires that burn the mountains like Maui. Um, yeah. And so and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, but um, yeah, so then I got my first paid career job in Sacramento, California, um, in a little fire district called Florin Fire District. It was six stations and I thought I won the lottery and I was like, oh, my God, they're paying me to do what I was volunteering to do. And I thought I was happy, uh, happier than I could ever imagine. And I was. It was amazing. So, yeah, yeah. that's how it all kind of started. Oh, it's cool. And, and I think one thing that's maybe not lost now, but it, it, it's harder to find because places have grown so much, is that start in the volunteer world, right, and moving your yeah. way up. I, I didn't mention before, my uncle is also in the fire service, and he was uh, – uh, he started as a volunteer to a department and he was one of the original ones that got hired full time. I mean, so nice. it's, it's crazy that, and I feel like those are the department that you started at. Is it, is it still volunteer or no, that's you, you hit the nail on the head. There's virtually, virtually no volunteer departments in California anymore. 
and, and we were surrounded by volunteers when I started in, the, in 1987. Um, but the station's there, the department's still there, but it's all full time now, and it's it's a different department now. It's a they they signed a contract for service with Monterey Fire Department, and so um, not a lot of nostalgia in that in that station. I mean, going way 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 back, but I it's fun. Well, every once in a while, I'll stop by and say hi. Not too often, but um, I just look at I just think about all the history that those guys don't even know about. I mean, yeah. it's nothing against them; they just they weren't even born. Yeah, just like I wasn't. I mean, the fire station was built in 1937, so it's you know there was plenty of history before my little ass you know showed up there one day. Um, so it's just um, it's a very different vibe than it was back in those days in the in the 70s and 80s when it was volunteers and um, it was just a different flavor. It was just a different flavor. Um, and I think for those who haven't had the chance to be a volunteer, um, I don't know, there's, there's something special about that, starting your career that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, great, it's a really strong foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you really understand what we're really there for, right? I mean, to serve people, right? It's not yeah. a paycheck. So. Yeah, I, I never worried about my pay in, in 32 years. Yeah. <laughs> I never cared. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. I just, it was a gift for me to it was but it was also a curse like you and i spoke about in the green room you know it's kind of a double-edged sword when you come from a family heritage and a family lineage of firefighting and you're a volunteer you have a very different mindset typically i'm saying not better or worse just different than the than the typical career firefighter who doesn't have the family background who who's there for a paycheck and i'm not saying they're not also there to do a good job they don't love it because they do but but I've I unfortunately found myself frustrated a lot of my career because people didn't have the same level of passion that I did, and and it wasn't fair to those people, because um, as I rose the ranks, I think I probably, you know, browbeat a little too much over the over someone that having a good good enough attitude, even though they did the job fine, even though they did their job and they they came and went and, and earned their paycheck, they, if they didn't meet my little standard of passion. Uh, I kind of, you know, I browbeat him a little bit. That probably wasn't wasn't fair. Hey, I, you're you're resonating with me because <laughs> I'm living that, and I'm on, you know, getting much better than I used to be. But yeah, I, I, I'm I'm in that right that that whole trying to balance. Not everyone's going to feel the same way as you do, right? And I'm sure yeah. a lot of other people deal with that same kind of uh, passion um, gap, I guess, if you will. That's probably too harsh a way to say it, but yeah. Well, that's why we have, like you said, FDIC, Fools, you know, ISFSI, all these groups of of nitwits who need more, you know, need more. And and it's it's a special thing. This the fire service is very special what we have. And um, we want to keep stoke those fires of passion and keep them going from generation to generation because we love it so much and we know what it gave to us. And so we want to see other people not only be blessed and 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 take from it and receive from that tree of fire service life but also fertilize and water it and and make sure that it's it's healthy you know for the next generation absolutely uh so as you're going through you know your career uh, how did you learn about and i'm gonna assume it's family but still uh how did you learn about the values and culture of of fire service was that well it was it was obviously family um but my family mirrored the fire service I'm a I'm a team guy. I love being with people. I'm I'm a big extrovert. I was the youngest of five in a big fat Greek family, so it was like everything was food and yelling and hugging and celebrating and everything was a party all the time. And uh, the fire service was an extension of that into the workplace, you know. 
And so my values of hard work, my dad was a World War II uh, infantry uh, soldier. He was, he was in the Army. He had fought in the Philippines, um, you know, Purple Heart, the whole bit. And he was, you know, born in 1917 and, and lived through the Depression. He was a coal miner as a kid. He was one of eight kids. They were very poor, and, they, and his parents were the immigrants that came over. And so the hard work ethic was, was there from day one. The teamwork, the family, um, the celebration, the eating together, all that stuff was is hardwired into me before the, I ever set foot in a firehouse at three years old <laughs> or four years old. It was literally hardwired into me before that. So it was a natural fit. And so um, the values and everything that I – uh, live by and have have come to uh, try to pass on and teach to my kids and to the folks I've worked with over the years are just uh, an extension of of not only the fire service but of of my upbringing and of my family and all those core values. Yeah, awesome. So when you find somebody else that's like that, you, you know, and when you find somebody else that's not, it's you know. Yeah. <laughs> the hard thing is for those of you who are listening, if you're a boss. It's tough. It's you can't do this to everybody that doesn't think like you or think the fire service is great as you. You know, you have to be like this with everybody the best you can, and and not just the people that that think and are as nuts as you about it, because then you're going to be one set up for a very very frustrating career, because people won't always meet your expectations, and and two, it's not fair to them. You're going to have conflict, and and you're not always going to be as effective as you can, and get them to buy in necessarily. Your passion, my passion at least has become an Achilles heel at times because of my, my values that I didn't think other people had enough of, if you will. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, and I, I phrase it, I know I sent you all the questions. One of the, the questions that I love to ask and the reason behind it, uh, I, I feel like not every firefighter gets an opportunity to champion someone early in their career who kind of set them up on the right path, got them off, and maybe they never got to tell them or maybe they just never acknowledged it in that way. And uh, so who is there somebody that stands out to you early in your career when you got on the job that really springboarded you to the rest of your career? You well, know, obviously, it's going to sound like a broken record, but my two brothers, Mitch Mitchell and Demetrius Castro, my two brothers, they were they were from the day I was born. They they were there for me and have been my best friends and mentors um, for 54 years of my life to this day. Um, our dad was was larger than life. I mean, he was like a real life Forrest Gump. I'll, I'll spare you the stories, but between the war, the depression, and his life, he had a remarkable life. Um, and then in the, once I got into the job, um, there were some amazing people from a distance and up close, instructors, bosses. Um, one that stands out is Stuart Roth. He, he, uh, he was uh, with the Monterey Fire Department. He also started as a volunteer. He's one of my dear friends to this day. Uh, he's one of our instructors. He's been one of our instructors on our, on our trained firefighters team. Um, he, he, he had this sparkle in his eye. He just had this joy all the time. Nothing got him down. Um, and he was just like, and he was an amazing, inspiring instructor. That was the first time I was around somebody who I went, oh my God, this I want to be like this guy because he was such a great instructor. Um, and then, of course, Alan Brunacini, Bruno from a distance because he was with Phoenix and I was in Sacramento. But but the, I started, I heard about this Phoenix Fire Department. They're they're really doing some amazing things down in Phoenix. And I started to study him. I studied his philosophies both on command and on leadership and customer service. And I went, oh my God, this man's a genius. This man's like. This, this guy is on a whole other level. And he was kind of like, I called him the Yoda of the fire service. You know, he's this little blah, 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 kind of guy. 
you know, but he was amazing. And he was kind of like the Albert Einstein and Yoda of the fire service way back in the seventies. And, um, the first day I ever, I, I, the first day I had a chance to actually meet him was in 2000, 23 years ago. It was FDIC West in Sacramento. And I remember I, I, I said, Hey, I'll volunteer to be Bruno Cini's, you know, hall monitor guy. I'll, I'll, I'll hand out evaluations or tell people where the bathroom is. I don't care what you want me to do. I just want to be in the room with the guy. And so I walked up, I've told this story a few times. I, I walked up to, to him at that, uh, at the beginning of class and I just held his little his little face you know and he's like looking at me and I'm like, I'm like oh, you are a beautiful little man do you know this do you know this about yourself and he looks at me and he goes okay <laughs> you know and I'm like and I go and so at the break I come up and I kiss him on the forehead and he goes and I'm grabbing his face and he goes what was that for <laughs> I go because you're awesome I love you he goes okay and then he goes do you drink and I go Yes, he goes, then we'll get along fine. <laughs> well, he never drank. He didn't drink. But you know, that was the kind of guy he was. And from that moment on to the day he died, he was always there for me. He was he was he was a phone call away. I could call him about when I was getting my ass kicked, when I was being stupid, when I didn't know what to do, and I have nobody else to turn to. Um, yeah, my brothers were there. Yeah, other mentors. But when you're talking to Alan Brunacini at the time, it's like you're at you're at the top of the pyramid. You might as well be talking to, you know, Moses, you know, it's like, okay. And he always had a, a, his funny, down-to-earth, dry way of just cutting through the BS and getting it back to reality. And and I called him a lot. And he was my phone-a-friend mentor for many, many years. And I, I wouldn't be here without him. I wouldn't be doing Calm the Chaos and the Command Trending, and I wouldn't be teaching at FDIC, and I wouldn't have written a book um, or two books. Or And he, he wrote the forward to my first book, which was – it's it's unbelievable you know it's full circle it's like being a pilot and leal armstrong you know is your buddy and writes a, a forward to some book you wrote on how to be a pilot you know it, it's just unreal so i've i've had a very blessed life in this in this career um and i just god has been great to me and my family um up down left and right with amazing mentors and people so i think that's what drives my passion to pass it on to teach as I was given so much to me, I feel like it's overflowing and I have to dump it onto somebody else because there's just too much to contain. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, the ripple effect of, of yeah. Bruno, uh, there's people that don't even know. And I was going to say, if anybody doesn't know who's listening, just just Google Alan Brunacini and just sit back and, and watch the videos, read the stuff. The man was, was ahead of his time by 100 years. Yeah, genius. Yeah, and... and um... We were talking a little bit uh, about Bobby too, and we'll we'll talk about him later. But that's another again the ripple effect that some of these uh, these these great firefighters have had. That I, I would imagine people getting in don't even know, but but they practice what they preach. You know what I mean? The customer service aspect that's so ingrained. They just into don't us know where now. it came from. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, they just don't know. Um, yeah, and that, and that that brings that's a good point you bring up. You know. I've got it right here on my desk. I mean, right here, you know, is Bobby's Bobby's picture and memorial, and his his challenge coin is right here. Yeah. And I've got I've got a picture of me and Bruno that I keep in my office too. And these guys, uh, they they stoke the fire of your passion along the way, and they add logs to it that you didn't even know existed. And um, the, I mean, it, and I feel like God has always given me the right person at the right time, literally. I mean, it was Bruno, 
then I was born into an amazing family, and then you know Stuart Roth, and then Bruno, and then Bobby, and and, and right now you know a, a dear friend and somebody who I felt like just by the grace of God has come into my life is Brian Brush. You know, he and I are writing this. We just wrote this incident command book together. It's going to come out next year. And that to me is another, you know, God ordained uh, friendship that I just never would have imagined. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about those things too. So, so book calming the chaos, train firefighters.com. Let maybe let some people know about what you're doing right now and, and what exists uh, from, from you. Thanks. Um, so about 30 years ago, give or take, I started a company called Firefighter Inspiration Readiness and Education, or FIRE, because I wanted to be clever. Oh, I'm going to call it FIRE. And basically, the website is now called trainfirefighters.com, all one word, trainfirefighters.com. And we've been teaching all around the country for, for a long, long time. And probably the, the, the biggest um, first thing that we did that got us on the map that nobody else was really doing was the assessment center classes and that was the first book came out in 2006 bruno wrote the forward to it by a fire engineering and that really took us to a new level when i say us i'm talking about my wife and and our team of instructors because um, this is a team sport i don't care who you are <laughs> it's a team sport and as that evolved, people wanted more simulator training. They wanted more because part of the assessment center process includes everything about being an officer, whether you're a lieutenant, a captain, a battalion chief. When you go through an assessment center, and I know that, that your area, Chicago, Illinois area, has a lot of assessment centers. I've been there a lot to teach these classes. I've had a lot of students come out. So shout out to all my brothers and sisters in Illinois um, and to the Fire Chiefs Association who's had me out there in many departments. So thank you all. Um, it's really about... It's really about being an officer. And what, what it is, is the book is called Mastering the Fire Service Assessment Center. Okay. And that kind of gets them in the door because they're thinking, I want to take the test. I got to compete with these other people and I want to be on the top of the list. I want to promote. And so they're thinking, I need to learn the tricks of testing. I need to, I need to you know, outsmart the competition. And then when I get them in the door, I lock the door like that scene from, uh, uh, what was that, a Bronx Tale. Mm. And I just go, okay, now that we got you in here, here's what this class is really about. We dive deep into four days of just, we just eviscerate them uh, professionally. And we, we just do, as Bruno called it, an occupational autopsy on them while they're still alive. And, and we help them learn about themselves. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your opportunities and threats around you? If you, if you struggle at, at communicating, how's that going to work for you as an officer? And how do you get better at it? Uh, so we do exercises like in-baskets, modified in-baskets, uh, conflict resolution exercises, um, writing exercises, uh, you name it, interviews, and then, of course, simulations, right? And so simulations are one of the most common exercises in any assessment center because that's a big part of our job. So students wanted more and more and more simulations, right? So they want to, hey, you know what? This, these four days were great, but we want more tactics and strategy, we want more incident command more simulations so my wife being the genius says well, why don't you just do a separate class just for that and you can go into depth a little more I said, okay so we started a two-day class called mastering fireground command calming the chaos and that just took off and then fire engineering said hey we'll, we'll do a video series on it so we did a three-part video series on that it came out in 2011 um and that got us again on the national stage with fdic and fire engineering and so the demand started to grow and grow and grow and then um, 
two years ago, I think now, two or three years ago, we put out uh, online versions during COVID. We put out online versions of both of these kind of marquee classes of ours. And um, now we do a hands-on version of Calm the Chaos where we come to fire departments all around the country. We just did Miami, Florida. Um, we've done Oklahoma City. We've done all kinds of departments, Reno, Nevada, and all kinds of departments around California and so forth. And we come to your department and give you the online course, which is 32 hours. It's very comprehensive, and it's, it's all heads-up footage of my fires that for over, the, over the course of 13 years as a battalion chief in a very busy system. So all the principles that you're being taught are followed up with actual incident command post footage. And then there's over 100 simulations in this. There's a simulator lab. So it goes really deep. And then we come to your fire department and do hands-on incident command training with your fire department. So smoke machines, mannequins, we're pulling companies out of service and, and stretching lines. Everyone's on SCBAs, turnouts, and on radios. And we're doing real-life fog of war, smoke, victims trapped, incident command. And so... It all it all started, you know, with with just trying to help people get the, get on the job, and then it was trying people help people promote, and then it was a self published little book from Kinkos, and then it became a real book from Fire Engineering, and then it became a second edition book, and then a video series. So my message to everybody is: you're only limited by your imagination and your faith in yourself, and your faith in what. God can do for you. I'm telling you, I'm a guy that started in a one-station volunteer department in, in, in nowhere, America, and Alan Brunacini to me was larger than life, and guys like him and others um, paved the way, and I want to do the same for others. I want others to come to me and say, hey, how can I, I've had a lot of guys, hey, how can I write a book? How can I teach a class at FDIC? How can I write an article? How did you do this? And I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you can do it. Don't be intimidated by the size of FDIC or if you don't come from a big-ass department. That doesn't matter. What matters is you have a passion and you have a gift, and you, and that gift is your passion. And if you can teach and you're passionate about what you're doing while you're teaching it, people will come to you. And so find that niche. And, I, and that's one of the things I love doing is, is not only teaching our students how to teach others because we do train the trainer, but having people come to you and say, hey, I have an idea for this class or I have an idea for this kind of tool. Do you think you could help me get it off the ground? My answer is always absolutely, because that was what was done for me. And so for all you listening, I don't care if you're from a volunteer department, career combination, one station, half a station, or 200 stations, get yourself out there. If you think you have something to contribute, do it. You, you will get more out of this career and this life if you do. Man, <laughs> I couldn't said that any better myself. Uh, I did actually have a question while you were going through there, though, that I thought of. So as you've traveled the country and you've been instructing, you know, incident command and communication and all that, how how different are we, like truly, like at a base uh, level before before you show up and you kind of – and you're assessing things, how widely different? Because I know we have NIMS and everybody's supposed to follow NIMS, but how, how different really are we? This is the segment of the show where I'm glad I'm drinking straight whiskey. <laughs> this is whiskey. No, I'm just kidding. But this is what, no. We are so freaking different. It's insane. And, and that's our mission is to get us on the same page. The, I mean, even one fire department that has one station will have three different ways of fighting a fire because they have three different shifts. Or if you're volunteers, you have 100 different ways because there's 100 different officers or whatever. So within their, your own agency, there'll be a million ways of doing it, let alone 
the department next door, let alone across the country. It's exponentially insane how many different ways there are. So I, I used to say in my department, and I love my department, it's a great department, that we had five battalions on, on, on any given shift, we had five battalion chiefs on duty and times three shifts. Well, so we had 15 ways of fighting a fire, literally. And that's, and what we're doing with the calm, the chaos is just chipping away at it, just trying to get on the same frickin'. And what is that page? It's called the incident command system. It's not rocket science. This, the page has already been written. What has it, what we're trying to do is show a training methodology that makes it fun and engaging, that saves more civilians and keeps us safe and gets us home to our family. And, and typical traditional ICS training was about, okay, here, a division is geographical and a group is functional and ICS, here's the span of control. And, and it was very rote memory kind of the, I mean, it's, I used to say it's like learning the, the human anatomy like a doctor needs to know human anatomy. Does that make him a good doctor? No. But is it a prerequisite to being a good doctor? Yes. So I see the basic ICS training on, on, you know, if you can fill out an ICS chart, you know, that was the big training back in the 70s when ICS first came out in the, in the early 80s. Can you fill out an ICS chart? That was it. Okay, cool. Well, that doesn't, that's like a doctor saying, I can show you what all the bones in the body are. Does that mean he's a great oncologist? Does it mean he's a great cardiac surgeon? No. So, that's what we do with our training is we teach them how to operate, how to how to take their knowledge, expand it, and then apply it to anything from a house fire to Maui, you know, and everything in between. And our team is very, very experienced. We have folks that have been with L.A. City Fire Department for many years. And, and my department's 40 stations and I was a battalion chief for 13 years and, and ran a lot of fires. And I also um, went to New York on 9-11. We got dispatched on our urban search and rescue task force on 9-11 lost brothers in the pile that day and i was on an overhead team for four years running fires around the country so there's a lot of experience nationally and from and i was a volunteer with one station so I, i've been fortunate to have this wide spectrum and i surround myself with other people who have a lot of experience and they they have to have passion for what they're teaching they have to have passion and care about their students and they have to have street credit and have experience but they also have to be really good instructors and that's what I ask of my my instructors. So, so circling back to your original question, how different is it? It's freaking crazy, and it makes me nuts. And I'm not saying anybody's wrong. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's local stuff. There's regional stuff. There's national stuff. Um, and what we're trying to do is say, look, here's ICS. Here's NIMS. Here's how you apply it every day in real life. And and it and it adds to the mix, victim profiling and tactical decision-making and the type, type of tactics that you use, the type of staffing you have, the type uh, how, what is your typical response to a house fire? Well, Lake Zurich Fire Department is going to be different than Sacramento Metro, which will be different from FDNY, which is going to be different from LA City. But there are common things that you plug in to spit out how it's going to look at your fire department while being NIMS and ICS compliant but not compliant because of rote memory and, and checking boxes, compliant because you're kicking the shit out of this thing. You're, you're, you're getting ahead of it. You're ahead of the incident power curve. You're saving civilians. Your crews are aggressive. They're empowered to go kick some ass, but they have the proper amount of tactical supervision to, to watch their ass while they're kicking out something else's ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's what it's about. It's about aggressive incident command, aggressive firefighting, but not stupid, foolish firefighting. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in my area, like we 
we have Mabus, which I'm sure when you've been up here, you've been right. You understand sure. Mabus yeah. and how we operate. Yeah. So I think one of the challenges for, for my area is because of our staffing levels, like we have jump companies. So that's already a check against us. That's difficult to plan for in a command level. And then on top of that, the size of our crews, the size of the, the amount of them and resources. Now, you know, Mabus is making a spread way out. So you're trying to basically plan ahead for complete unknowns of who's even going to show up. Yep, and uh, that's been an interesting thing to see. One of the, uh, I, and I'm going to butcher it. And if my dad's watching this, he's going to be like, "Oh, you can't say whatever the alliance is." But I think it's what the Western Chicago Suburban Fire Alliance or something. There's like a bunch of departments in the area that he works. They all do the same tactics. They've all got the same, you know, SOGs. They have predetermined huge. Like, and that's just them together kind of solving that problem to a certain extent. So I know at his level, he knows if he goes to a certain department, he's going to be the writ chief where, you know, he would be the change of quarters chief for another one and so on and so on. So it's kind of cool that they do it in that way. Absolutely. uh, Where it almost does kind of feel like a countywide, you know, fire department. And and that's what you want. And that's what you need, because most departments are under three, three to five stations, most just three to five or less right stations the vast majority is still volunteer the vast majority don't have adequate staffing i'm not talking about la city and fdny i'm talking about the rest of the planet and most of them um just don't have a robust enough response system or staffing level to to hit some arbitrary nfpa or ics standard but those not they're not arbitrary but but they're sometimes unachievable Okay, they just don't have the staffing. We've taught this class in Seguin, Texas, which is in the middle of nowhere. One station, one, two stations of volunteers. And we've taught it to Miami, Florida, and Oklahoma City. And it works both places. Because we're not saying this is how you have to do it or this is what your SOG should be or what your staffing level should be. We're saying, what is your staffing level? What is your SOGs? What's your response level? Are you volunteer combination? What tactics do you employ? Do you vertical vent or not? You positive pressure or don't you? We're not telling you what to do. We take all that stuff and we put it into the blender and we say, here's how incident command using ICS, NIMS, and a lot of other principles, both UL NIST science-based principles, practical uh, experience-based principles, timeless principles from all the forefathers that came before us, and how do you how do you make it work and fit your system, your world? And because and, it's not one size fits all. And the problem when they, people hear NIMS or ICS, they think, oh, it's one size fits all. It's not going to work. No, no, no. It's, it's scalable. It's uh, adaptable to you. So whether you're, a, you know, whether you're some doctor in a, in a tiny little town in Nebraska and you've got 2,000 people or you're a physician at Mount Sinai, you know, in New York, you still got to be a good doctor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so. That's what we're teaching people, how to make tactical decisions and how to stay ahead of the incident power curve, how to bridge the tactical gap between the crews working and the incident commander. Why is there a gap? What causes the gap? How does the gap widen? What happens when it widens? What is the NIOSH 5? Why is that a bad thing? How do we bridge it to prevent the NIOSH 5 from coming into alignment? Because I don't care if you're at L.A. City and you have the uh, Boyd Street incident where a bunch of our brothers got burnt up on a commercial fire or your uh, Porterville, California, which most people have never heard of, where two of our brothers died in a library fire. It, it, the fire's coming, and it's coming for you, and it's going to kill you, and it wants to hurt you bad. And there are common factors in both worlds, whether it's Porterville 
or LA City. And we've worked with both. And 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 that's the thing is is you can have that universality. Is that a word? Universal universality. You can have that stuff that uh, is common to the whole fire service, but then you have to have the numerators that are unique to your particular agency. And that's that's the secret sauce and what we're teaching. And we're doing it hands on. And so there's, as you know, I mean, hands-on training is a whole other level. Yeah. And to, and I'm not talking about simulations. No. Nope. Simulations are great, and we do simulations. But I'm talking about you're in the command post, and you've got a, a training building or a, an acquired structure that's billowing smoke out of it. Not not necessarily working fire, live fire training, but smoke machines. And you got crews going in and turnouts, and they're talking to you, and it sounds like this. And you have to figure out how to communicate with that person. How do I... How do I set up a division or a group between me and that person to bridge that gap between me and that firefighter or that captain? That officer is with his or her crew inside a, a building. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't communicate. I can't understand what the hell they're saying. And their reality and my reality in the command post are two very different worlds. How do I bridge that gap? And that's what the tactical gap is. And that's how we bridge it with division and group supervisors. Not to check a box. Not to say, okay, we, I made a division of NIMS compliant. That's the last reason we do it. Yeah, We do it because it saves freaking lives and also allows us to go and get and save lives as well as protect our own. It's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And so I want a quick shout to our chat here because uh, Chris, Chris uh, Leanhart, he's saying, wait a minute, I recognize the voice. Was he in charge of El Camino? Yes. Yes, he was, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I use that. I use that for training all the time. Uh, I, I love what you've put out from that, and it, it, it's a great uh, way to explain a number of things, including survivable space and all that. I mean, it, it really. I mean, kudos to not only your crew but you for putting that out, right? Well, it was. It was all them. And all uh, them. Uh, Mike Wolchess here is saying you're making some great points, and you are. You absolutely are. I think one of the things that uh, I. I I love to poke at and talk about with incident command is is when establishing that group supervisor makes sense. So I I, I, right, I, right. I know that staffing's got to permit that to a certain extent, right? In your span of control, I I have yep. been on fires where that group supervisor has been invaluable, and then I've been on fires where they've made someone a group supervisor that still <laughs> needed to do work. You know what right. I mean? Early on in an incident, so you could probably touch on that uh, uh, kind of the sweet spot, if you will, for, for when establishing that makes sense. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm glad I'm taking some notes here. Mm -hmm. um, so you, I love what you said. It is a sweet spot. It, it's, it's, a, it's a sweet spot. You don't want to do it too early or too late. So let's talk about what I call the ICS formula. Okay, and this is the kind of stuff that we teach us not in the ICS NIM stuff. The ICS formula is the building plus the conditions plus the resources. So when do I establish a division or group? How do I do it? Who's going to be the division or group, right? And then those three things have to come into play. Building, is it large, small? Is it commercial, residential? Is it multi-floor? Is it wide rise, high rise? All those things matter. Is it construction type? Is it a tilt up? Is it, is it a balloon frame? Is it conventional? Is it URM? What is it? That all matters. Because that's going to determine how you're going to organize the building how you're going to anticipate the fire is going to behave in the building. And so you have to think about that before you just arbitrarily throw a division or group supervisor on some floor. Second thing is um, the conditions. Okay. Light smoke, heavy smoke, working fire, multiple rooms, multiple units, victims trapped, 
exposure problems, fire in the overhead and the cock lofter in the attic, basement, all that kind of stuff. Um, wind, weather, time of day, victim profile, all that comes into play. And then finally, the most, and you can have those first two anywhere in America, right? The biggest variable is what? Resources. And do I have one volunteer chief and, and 30 volunteers? Do I have, you know, five chiefs and 60 career firefighters in two seconds? Am I FDNY? Am I LAFD? Am I Metro Fire? Am I Seguin, Texas? Um, you know, where am I and what's my resource level? Because you can't have a very robust incident command system if you don't have the parts and pieces to make it work, right? You hit the nail on the head, Alex, when you said, look, I don't want to take away a worker to fill a division or group role. So the question becomes, when do I when do I take away a worker? Because we're all workers. I don't care if it's a chief or not. They're all workers. Okay. When do I take a worker and put him from task to tactical? When do I take him from working to heads up supervising? And that has to be an investment. Okay. It's because when you take away that worker, you're saying I'm investing his labor and investing it into another effort called supervision. What's my return on that investment? So if I lose a guy on a nozzle or, or a gal on a search crew and I put them as a division or group soup, what's my, what's my gain? And the gain is the NIOSH 5. You gain a better risk assessment, meaning they're going to see stuff in the tactical space, in that tactical gap that the crews will never see, like fire over their head or impending collapse or a basement underneath them that's involved they didn't even know about when they got on scene, right? Or victim profile or fire conditions changing around them and them they, they can't see their hand in front of their face. They're task focused and don't hear the radio, right? And so that's number one. Plus, what's the incident commander gonna miss? They're gonna miss all the same stuff because they're too far away. Even if you're in the front alpha side of the building, 25 feet away, even if you're in the front yard, you're gonna miss the back, the sides, the inside, the basement, the roof. You can't see everything at once and you can only take so many inputs. So I'm going to take somebody, I'm going to invest at one of the workers and say, you are my eyes and ears on the alpha side, Bravo, Charlie roof, wherever it is, or third floor, 10th floor, whatever. And you are now my eyes and ears. So I'm completely trusting in you to take care of those crews and to make tactical decisions. So that brings us to from risk assessment to the next thing, which is accountability. Who's going to account for crews better? Me at the command post, out at the command post. I don't care if the command post is the front yard. If it's behind a BC rig, if it's a block away, or if it's a mile away, you're not going to, I don't care what system you use for accountability. They're all great. Okay. But you're never going to have the same accountability as a tactical supervisor who has eyes on, hands on, real time, active accountability, seeing the crews coming and going, knowing that engine one went to the left and engine two went to the right. And they were, they went in two minutes ago. And I, and I'm expecting to see these changes then come out in this amount of time that, Nobody can do that for you. No, no system can do that. Are there a great system? Yes. But to me, those are backup systems to a human leader being in a supervisory role. So that's your kind of communications. I want to get much better communications because now instead of, okay, I have a supervisor in the back called Division Charlie who can see knockdown without even talking to them. He can see knockdown. He can see conversion. He can, see, he can communicate to roof if he needs to or alpha. And, or say command division Charlie, they have a good knockdown of the fire. We're going to transition into um, salvage and overhaul without ever talking to the crews because they saw the conditions change. Or one of the crew members comes out and says, "Hey, hey, boss, we got a primary search. We're going to we're going to start a secondary." 
okay, he heard that face to face through a mask. That's easier than through the radio on a mask, right? So now I can say, okay, command, Division Charlie, engine one reports, primary search complete. I'm going to have engine two start a secondary, okay? Accountability is a whole other level. The next one is uh, incident command itself. By having these folks out there, me as the IC, my span of control goes down, right? I've decentralized my decision-making out to those supervisors. And I say, you know what? Here's the strategy. Here's the priority. You guys go and, and do the tactical part. I'll keep track of the big picture. I'll get ahead of this thing and call resources. I'll support you. Here's my plan. You guys execute it and tell me if we need to change the plan. And that can't happen. That can't happen with a guy on a nozzle. Because what does the guy on the nozzle want to do? Keep fighting fire no matter what. Period. End of subject. Right? When, when have you ever heard somebody inside of a building on air say, we need to go defensive? You ever heard that? I haven't. No. It, it doesn't happen. Because they, in their mind, we still got it. We still got it. We still got it. It's always somebody outside that goes, oh, crap, we need to go defensive. Right? And if I'm at the command post, I might miss that view. But my supervisor will see it. And then finally... SOGs. Are they following the SOGs? Are we in line with the SOGs? Do we need to tweak? Do we need to tweak where we're going here and kind of push a little bit? Or are they just being idiots? So I need to reel them in. Okay, so those are the NIOSH five. And that's that's just from NIOSH reports, reading all of them and looking at them and looking at the trends. And, um, you know, our friends at firefightercloscalls.com, Billy Goldfeder and those guys, they're the ones that really started that that terminology. I just took it and, and ran with it. But that's what, you're, that's what you're getting back for the investment of one task level worker. Because I know even if you have minimal staffing, how often have you been in a burning building, you look around and half the guys aren't doing anything. They're just kind of standing around waiting for some, some, some supervision or some leadership or some direction. You know, how many times have you been in a house fire and command calls to engine one and asks for a can report, give me an update, give me a can report, and engine one keys the mic and standing right next to him is engine two. Yeah. And if they don't feed back on each other, then he says, a copy, engine two, give me a counter report. And he's sending right next to engine one who just gave the same report. So now you had twice as many transmissions that were terrible versus one supervisor consolidating their companies into one can report on behalf of all those companies. That's it. Yeah. And so that's really what that's really what it comes down to. I don't even remember the original question, so forgive me. Talk, no, but, talking about know. that sweet spot, right, when you pull a worker that's, off. So, and, so the sweet right? spot, thank you. So the sweet spot is too soon or too late. So you have to have that as a background before I can answer the question, what's the sweet spot? What's the ICS formula, building conditions resources? What's the NASH 5? What are you getting back for that investment? So here's, so the sweet spot when is answered by all of that. So as an example, if I have one engine company on scene and, and I'm a chief, I'm not gonna make a division or group because I don't have enough resources. If I have two companies on scene, I still might not based on the rest of it. For example, let's say I have a house fire with two victims trapped and I have two engines on scene. I'm not going to make a division or group because they both have to work and I can manage them. I can manage two to one very easily and I need them to work. Now, though, I've got three victims and an additional company shows up. Now I'm starting to teeter on, okay, it's about time because I'm not just thinking about what I have going on now. I'm thinking about what's my next one, three, five, and ten minutes. Am I about to have a second alarm come in on me? Am I, is the, is the fire getting worse? Am I going to add a third alarm? And I want to stay ahead of it. Cause if you wait until you're overwhelmed to make a group or division, it's already too late. It's already too late. 
Okay, so you have to do it before you need it. The question is, is how long before? How soon? It, it's 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 all about anticipating the power curve. The incident will will spike, and then it'll start to do this, and then it'll have a secondary peak. The incident power curve goes like this. It you get on scene and everything's going crazy. You've got nothing going on. You got a lot of stuff going on. People are screaming. There's fire. You need to get lines in place. You need to get searches going. You need to get a, a supply established. You might call additional alarm. And then all of a sudden they start to get a knock on it and maybe even see conversion. And you start thinking, hey, we might got this. And then you get a primary complete. And then you start thinking, okay, we're going down. We're getting better. But guess what? There's always a secondary spike. And it could be there's fire in the attic we didn't know. A mayday. We have a victim we didn't know we had. The pump fails. The hydrant's no good. There's always that secondary spike. The smart incident commander doesn't wait till over here to put, an inc- to put a division or group in place. They do it over here while this is happening. But not, but, but not so soon that the first company becomes a division or group. That's, you don't want to do that. The reason why we don't make the first company a division or group is why. We want work done in their task level. Their task level, get to work. Based on the type of incident, I might need two companies, three companies to go to work before I make a division. I had a, a three-story center hall apartment fire one night. Came in at 2 in the morning, going like hell because what happened was, was the gas line was severed. And it, it blew up, and it blew the roof off the top of the building, and it blew the walls out. This is before we got on scene. Multiple apartments are burning, multiple people are trapped, and there's high winds and a gas leak. The whole first alarm has to go to work right now, and I have to bridge the gap with my brain. I can't make divisions. I tried to. This is where I learned this, this hard lesson was I tried to make a division, and one of the cabins said, blow it at your ass because I got work to do. And I said, okay, you're right. Lesson learned, you know. And so I had to wait till the second chief showed up to even make a division. Now, that was based on what? Building conditions, resources. Big-ass building, 200 by 200, three-story center hall, conditions. Lots of fire, gas-fed, explosion, uh, building collapse, victims trapped, resources, three alarms. So I, I was able to use chiefs, and I could, I, I could afford to wait for chiefs because it took a while to get to that third floor. It took a while to get lines stretched, to get supplies going, get crews to the roof. And in that time, here comes my wave of second chiefs. Now I can make them my divisions. House fire, different story. Now I've got engine one arrives, initiates fire attack. Engine two comes in, assumes command from engine one. Got two engines on scene. They're fighting fire. They're, they're getting a water supply. They're, they're thinking about two out slash backup line. First truck's arriving with me. Now I'm right at three to one on arrival. Okay, where's this going? Well, you know what? The fire's still cranking along. We don't even have a primary. Okay, guess what? Second engine that was in command, you're now Division Alpha. You, the captain who was in, in command, you were already in command anyway. You're now Division Alpha. I just bridged a tactical gap. I'm here to take command from you. You've got your crew, engine two, and truck one all working for you. And all of a sudden, the radio traffic goes real quiet. Accountability, all the other NIOSH 5 get taken care of. And let's say all of a sudden they want a second line. No problem. Feed Division Alpha. You know, we need roof. We need rooftop vertical vent. Second truck, your roof division, go to work. Now I'm at what? Two to one. Okay. And second chief, he wasn't even on scene yet. Yet I've got four companies working. But I'm at two to one. Now all of a sudden I get told we got a victim trapped as the medic arrives. So I'm going to call a second medic. I just went to five, six to one. And I call a second medic. And the first medic goes right to work getting the victim. Turns out, oh, there's two patients. Now I've got additional medic. Now I'm at seven, eight to one. Chief shows up. 
Now I'm at nine to one. See what happens? If I didn't make that division, house fires go really freaking fast. You know, bigger fires, there's a little more discretion. It takes time for companies to get in place to get the tasks going. So you may, you may use a third or fourth company to be a division or, a, or the second chief versus a house fire, which, and, and when do we get victims trapped? House fires. Yeah. Apartment fires. That's, that's when it's happening. So I hope that answers the question. No, yeah. Okay. It does, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's, I think that obviously the takeaway, like it's dynamic, right? To make sure that you're, you're dynamic with it, that it's, don't get in a box, right? Where it's specific. Every fire you will do at this time. This specific company will do it at this time, right? Like it's very fluid and, and dynamic. I, right. I, I right. really love the way that you, you've phrased all that. And it, I think that makes all the sense in the world. And you covered like six of my questions. I feel like sorry. So no, no, no. In a good way. In a good well, let's, way. And let's just, well, we can dive into any of those more if you want, just to kind yeah. of dive because I know I cover because it's hard to answer these questions in in one or two sentences. Yeah. You know, it's not checkbox. You know, real incident command is it's it's making something that's very complex into something that's simple and easy to apply and easy to understand and easy to work in. Yeah. Right? It's complex. It's a lot going on. It's the capstone of, of the fire service. To be an incident commander means you better know everyone else's job pretty damn well, right? And I've seen it where that's not the case. I've seen incident commanders who were never on a truck. I've seen incident commanders who were on that many fires, and it shows. They have to have experience and depth and then be able to not only understand and, and have done those jobs, but organize it, anticipate, and think ahead. But more importantly, empower their officers to, to fill those gap positions of tactical divisions or groups. It's a team sport. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess one of the other questions I get with, with tactics, and um, well, maybe not tactics, I apologize, but in incident command is I've seen um, some people want to be in the car, some people want to be out of car. Uh, can you share some, some insight and some of your thoughts on that of when, when to be in the car, when to be out of the car? It's a completely a personal preference. Okay, I never was in the back of the car, and I never stood in the front, front yard. I always was in the car. Why? Well, number one, being outside, whether you're in the front yard or in the back of the car, will get you a lot of distractions. Noise, engines, horns, rigs pumping, saws, people screaming, and every bystander wants to come and ask you what's going on. And every, if, you have a, if you have a city council, board of directors, off-duty, whoever, they're going to come and bug you, ask you questions, and you just want to eliminate the background noise and the distractions. So that's why I sat in the rig. I locked the door, put the windows up, put the air conditioner on, a little recirculate, little little... Frank Sinatra, a little mint julep, ready to go, kicking back, relaxing. Okay. And of course, when somebody comes up to ask a question, I got to switch from recirculate to, to fresh, to get a little positive pressure, especially on a hot day. Okay. Put the window down a little bit. What do you got? What's up? Okay. All right. Good. Close the window, recirculate. That's supposed to be funny. I, it is anyway, the, 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 <laughs> the point is, is that's what I preferred. Is it wrong to go in the back? No. But I, but I can tell you, it, it's people don't do it because they think it's great. They do it because that's what they were told to do. That's what they saw their whole time. And I always got it. I, I get it from everywhere. I used to get it from my colleagues. I used to get it from, I still get it from Anthony Avillo. You know, how come you command the fire from the car? Why the hell aren't you out in the front yard? You know, how come, why don't you teach your classes from the freaking lobby? What the hell? And I'm like, because I'm not a fascist prick. Like, dude, Anthony. Okay. And so we give each other crap, but, that's just my opinion. Um, I think if you're at the front, you're going to get sucked into the tasks and be overwhelmed and overstimulated and not hear the radio. I think if you're in the back of the rig, 
you may not be overstimulated by the, the fire, but you'll be overstimulated by all the surrounding sounds and people that want to bug the hell out of you. And so a controlled environment, I have heard past devices that no one else heard. I have heard uh, vibra alerts on people's transmissions that you would never hear if you were elsewhere. Little nuances in somebody's voice inflection, right? That kind of stuff matters. And it forces you to stay in your position at the strategic level. And the only reason why I'm empowered to do that is because I have tactical supervisors bridging the gap. I'm sure if I didn't use ICS or, or create tactical supervisors or have a decentralized system where people were empowered and equipped to fill those roles, I'd want to get out to the front of the building too. Because how else am I going to find out what the hell's going on? Closer is better, right? But when you create divisions or groups, you literally step back and decentralize and say, I'm trusting you. It could only, it might just be one officer being division alpha. If a commercial, maybe it's two officers alpha, Charlie with a roof division. Maybe you got Rick, maybe you got medical. You, you take what was 10 to 1 and make it 3 to 1. You know, and now when you're further back, you can get in the what if part of the fire. Okay. The task level is the now, what's happening right now. The tactical is next, what's happening in the next minute or two. The strategic is supposed to be then what if. Then I'm going to call a second alarm. Then I'm going to get an investigator and a rehab crew. What if I have a mayday? Guess what? Task level ain't thinking that stuff. They're thinking about right now, get some, get some, get some. That's all they're thinking, yeah. right? So the further you're able to get back, the more you can get ahead of that curve we talked about earlier. Oh, that's great advice. I, I, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Um, so for you personally, uh, what was your transition from from supervisor, from, from company officer into that command role? Uh, how, how did you go about what were you? formally taught a lot of things how much of it was self-driven um how was that transition for you um i, th- I want to say a lot of it was self um because as you well know most of everybody listening knows at the fire service you're kind of we're all out for ourselves in the sense that most fire departments don't give you enough succession planning training they don't give you enough in-house officer development whether it's lieutenant captain battalion chief uh, or above um so you have to go out and find it on your own. And so from an early age, having had those mentors, my brothers, the Stuart Ross, the Brunos of the world, I went out and continually sought opportunities to learn. But I learned, but then start to train and give back, but also deepen that understanding through the training. And so the transition from company to chief officer for me was a very natural one because I had been around some amazing mentors and had a lot of experience both on the large scale and on the, on the day-to-day stuff. And I felt I was ready for it. I had been teaching and developing officers for many years, including chief officers as a captain with my books and classes. And I thought, okay, it's, now I'm, I'm ready to go. And I, it was really interesting. I remember when I taught an assessment center class before my own battalion chief test, I had, my, I had guys that were taking the same test with me, taking the class from me. And I'm like, it didn't bother me because I'm like, I'm, it wasn't about being arrogant. It was like, it's not about the test. It's about what, what, you, what do you already have? What is the skills that you possess and can, and can um, engage on any given situation? And I don't, I don't need to worry about giving away secrets in some class. I'm happy to help, right? And so, so for me, it was pretty, pretty natural. You feel like it just, it just clicked? Incident command My, or? Yeah, because yeah, I'm weird and I, and I like things organized. 
So it was a partially loaded question because so so my I, little tiny quick background of me when when I left uh, my my department before Lake Zurich I, I was a lieutenant and I did act in the in the battalion chief role and uh-huh. uh, I I only I never had a major incident I, I had a, uh, a vehicle rollover and that was the that was my claim to fame if you will for that for that when you know and I was managing a couple companies and I had some fire alarms and that kind of stuff but it like. I really didn't get a ton of formalized training and that's not knocking them, but it's like you said, like there's only yeah. so much you can get. And there's a point where they were like, Hey, uh, Ryan's off. You're in the car. And I'm like, what? Nah. And yeah. you know, that pushed me to go try to find some, some information on my own. Uh, yeah. but I realized as I kept doing it, that, that it just clicked. And I remember I asked my dad about that and he was like, no, uh, like for some people like command structure and, and that just makes sense. And, yeah. and I was, curious, yeah. you know, if that, it was kind of the same way for I, you. I'm 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 anal type A weird. Um, I have Tourette's, which comes with a side order of, of OCD, which is great when you want to organize shit. So uh, it makes you think about things to the nth degree before they ever happen. And so, to me, knowing I'm too stupid to do it on my own, I had to develop other people around me to be part of that incident command structure. If that makes sense. Um, and and watching the way that Brunacini, for example, empowered people on all levels this is what I wanted to do as a battalion chief. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. I needed to develop officers around me that could either take command or take a division or group or, or, or work without me or with me and act on my behalf on what's best and even counter what I'm asking. And even I call it loyal disobedience. And just for, if, if he's listening, if he's ever listening, um, David Rhodes, I coined that phrase before, (laughs) but the loyal disobedience part, is really important. I've had, like I said earlier, I've had captains come back and go, I can't run this division for you. I'm still task level. I'm like, okay, cool. So it's a, it, command is a team sport and it's always been thought of as a, as an individual sport. It's golf, it's tennis, right? No, it's a f- command. Firefighting is a team sport. Command was always looked upon as a solo opera. It's not, it's a team sport. And so what I wanted to do and I was obsessed with was developing my, the people around me, my department, my battalion, now the country, on how to understand this is the command's a team sport. None of us were smart enough, especially me, to be able to organize, get our head around an incident that's this complex that wants to kill a lot of people. It's killing people and it's and it's destroying buildings when you before you ever get there. And when you get there, you're gonna throw more people into it, on it, and at it, thinking it's gonna get better. And sometimes guess what? It doesn't. How do you get ahead of it, fix it? It's not a solo operation. Anybody thinks it is, is ignorant, arrogant, or heaven forbid both. And and I didn't want to be because I'll tell you, let me give you an example. My first day on the job as a battalion chief, okay? The list came out on July 1st. I, like you, I filled an acting position my first day on 4th of July in California on a red flag day. I had 14 working fires my first day in the seat. And the department did nothing to help me learn anything. Not their fault. It's come a long way. The department now does captain academies, battalion chief academies. It has a very robust system of... of mentoring and succession planning back when i got promoted zinc zilch okay and so my first shift i'm going literally from fire to fire to fire all working fires some of them grass some of them structure some of them both and i all i had to rely on was my training and it was the stuff that i taught in my classes in my book and i'm like this is it's it has to work because i got no other options here and fortunately if you tell somebody, I need you to be division alpha, you got the front of the building, here's engine one, two, and three, 
put the fire out and, and do a good search for me. Most people can make that work. Now, are there nuances? Absolutely. Are there are there specific training techniques and details to be really good at it? Where you have to learn how to be hostile, agile, mobile? Yes. How to account for crews? How to how to recognize changing conditions? How to make tactical decisions? How to recognize the Nash five when it's coming? Yes, of course. But but pretty much any schnook can run a division in in the heat of the moment, right? Case in point, I was teaching this class again to a, a small volunteer department, and after class. It was a two-day class, and the first night I'm back in my room, relaxing, uh, eating dinner, and I get a phone call from the fire chief who who brought the class to his department. And I hear a siren in the background, wee, 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 and I hear this, do you want to go to a fire? And I'm like, are you going to a fire? He goes, yeah, I'm going to a fire. You want to go? I'm all, no. I'm having dinner. I'm relaxing. And he goes, okay. Click. So turns out he goes to this, like, three mobile homes are going nuts, right? He gets there, and there's like 57 different volunteer departments are on scene, and 500 more are coming, right? So there's no accountability. There's no SOGs. It's, all, it's the Wild West, every man for himself. And this chief shows up, and there's already another incident commander, another chief whose, whose jurisdiction it was in, because he was mutual aid, who's in command, and his eyes are this big. And this chief who was in my class walks up and goes, and this, the incident commander was not in the class. Incident commander is drowning. And the, and, the, and the chief from the class walks up and goes, you want me to take a division alpha for you? That means I'll take the front and I'll take all those guys over there. We'll put this fire out for you. What, what do you think that IC said? Please. <laughs> okay. He didn't go, well, no. He goes, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not rocket science. And, and it, it requires you to recognize that you can't do it all on your own, even especially before the fire comes. Because when you start arguing during the fire, bad things happen. And I've been there, and it's not fun. <laughs> uh, I got to I gotta acknowledge my chat here for a second. So Vandenberg, Jay Vandenberg says, as the official mustache diplomat, <laughs> I must acknowledge Alex's accomplishments beyond this podcast. I'm certified as mustache ops. No, I'm not. I still don't grow in the middle. We're, we're getting yeah, I was there. noticing what's with the fire break right there. I, it's genetics, about? and I could make a really off-color joke that I don't know if I want to make on don't do it. podcast. Don't so do I'm it. not gonna do it. Do However, it. and I got to acknowledge my black guy. I got hit in the face with a shovel. While I was doing my deck. Hit in the face with a shovel. With a shovel. It was myself too, which makes it even worse. Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, my wife watched the whole thing. So yeah. any witnesses? Oh, your wife, huh? Straight yeah, up watched it. Brought the kids yeah. to the window. Husband, wife, privilege. Yeah, okay, whatever. The boys are waving at me. Look at daddy out there digging. Pink. <laughs> Not good. Bad luck. Anyway, um, so I think that was kind of it for the command questions. I really did want to talk about originally kind of how I reached out to you in the first place. So uh, a little background behind it. So I I sat through the the FDIC's tribute to Bobby Halton uh, this year, and uh, a variety of speakers went up and told stories about Bobby and and all these things that that he did for them and and inspired them. And, And your story really was just something else that, and obviously all of them were great stories to hear, but uh, yours really hit me, and uh, I, I wanted you to kind of talk about the recliner snipers and that your what went through or what you went through uh, in that. So as you're talking, I'm I'm holding my my little Bobby Halton challenge coin here. Um, so I uh, 
I coined the phrase recliner snipers along the way in my career. And these are guys that sit in their recliners, locked and loaded, waiting for somebody to try something, do something new, have a good attitude, try and promote, try and be in charge of a committee, do anything good. And what do they do? And they just, they're just sitting there waiting. And every sniper has a spotter. <laughs> and what they do is they just wait. And, and the problem is, is these recliner snipers, they're insecure. They're pissed off. They've got baggage. Either they were passed over for promotion. Or maybe they were bullied as a kid. Or maybe they're going through a divorce. I don't know what it is. But everyone's got baggage. I have it. You have it. Everyone's got baggage in the world. Recliner snipers don't know how to manage their own baggage. And they usually hit other people over the head with it and don't even realize they're doing it. Sometimes they do know they're doing it. But their insecurities cause them to shoot down other people in the firehouse to, to feel better about themselves. So if, if I went to the academy with Joe and Joe steps up and says, I want to try and promote on this next test. I'm going to take the test. And I look and I go, well, well, that makes me feel bad about myself. I didn't take the same classes. I wasn't as motivated because I had kids. Well, Joe, you're not ready, man. I've known you since the academy. You're not freaking ready. That's that's recliner sniping. Okay. And so, but what it is, it's a manifestation of insecurities. And I got my ass kicked by recliner snipers. And it to this day, they're, they're all out there. They never stop. Um, I've converted many of them, and some of them I, I couldn't, and some of them I just avoided. But they're out there, they're real, and if you're listening to this podcast, that means you care, you're engaged, and you're going to have a target on your back. You, you might want to do a simple drill. You might come to work with a good attitude one day, and some recliner sniper is going to be triggered, as we say nowadays, triggered, and they're going to literally pull the trigger on you because it makes them feel better to shoot you down, either backstab you or do it to your face or do it in front of a crowd. And recliner snipers tend to be, uh, they, they run in packs. They run together in packs because they are insecure. They like to operate with others like them because it makes themselves feel better and more powerful. Typically, they don't snipe by themselves. They usually have to have at least one spotter. So when they work overtime shifts, either they'll keep quiet or they will snipe because they think they're making a statement on behalf of all the other buddies back at their shift. And so in any case, they're a pain in the ass. However... However, I believe that with good leadership, they can be rehabilitated because you need to know what caused them. What's their baggage? What caused them? Was it literally, was it childhood? Was it the chief pissed them off? Was it a passing over for promotion? They didn't make the list. They studied hard. Are they going through divorce? Is there something with their kids? And where we, where we really learned about this was in our assessment center classes because um, our students would manifest their baggage and in, in these classes because it's very intense. When you're giving, when you're being interviewed by two people you don't know in a class, or you're having to do a simulation, or you're having to do a conflict resolution, and the person reminds you of your teenage kid who's pissing you off right about now in your life, you get shit's going to go down. And I've seen it happen a hundred thousand times, and it happens in real life. And so, as a boss, for those of you who are officers, don't take it personal and don't make it personal. That's something I did. I, I took it personal. And I made it personal way too much in my career, and that wasn't the right thing to do. Don't take it personal. Don't make it personal and find out what the root cause is. Why are they sniping? Are they insecure? Is, are they pissed off? What happened? And you don't confront them with it. Hey, I know you got passed over for promotion. That's why you're an asshole. So let's talk about that. That's not going to work. They don't like direct. They like indirect. They need respect because they're not getting it from somewhere else. Okay. And so the way they get respect is by putting others down. They're bullies basically, right? So you give them respect in other ways. You, you talk to them with respect. You call them senior man if they're the most senior guy in the firehouse. You, 
you, you talk to them on the side and you advocate for them, or, or maybe you get them to help you do a project and you give them a lot of kudos, or they do a good job on a fire and you go out of your way to really pat them on the back in front of everybody. That's that's you know, and sooner or later, I've had I've had recliner snipers who who never would have taken a promotional test unless I talked to them about it and, and kind of you know said, hey man, you'd be a great captain. You just need to stop doing this, and I think you'd be amazing. Or hey, you know, have you ever thought about this? Um, yeah, but you, again, my biggest pitfall was making it or taking it personal, and it doesn't have to be that way. But when you're passionate, that's the Achilles heel, so you got to be careful. Yeah, it's. Maybe I mean, personal. it's really easy to take it personal, right? It's much yeah. easier road yeah. to be upset about that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's it's inspiring to hear. You know, you had some conversions from oh. people that were like that. Like that's no, a lot of people over the years, a lot, and because. When you know how to approach a recliner sniper, they really respond. They're like, whoa, nobody ever cared enough to talk to me before. That kind of was the response. You know, nobody ever advocated for me before. Thank you for reaching out to me. You know, But if you have a real hard case, it can be tough. They're, they're, they're lashing out. You know, they're like a, they're like a, 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 a dog that was, that was abused. They, they bite everybody. You, know, you try and put your hand out to give them a, a snack, and they bite it. And it's hard not to go pull your hand away and, and hit the dog back. So that's, you know, it happens sometimes. Uh, I got a question from the audience here. So it's, uh, what what are your thoughts on helping others get ready for the test, even if they'll be your competition? And I know you kind of touched a little bit on that, but. I think it shows a level of confidence and maturity. Um, I don't like to think of a test as competition. When you think of a test as a competition or you're being scored or you're being ranked or you have to get on a list and beat somebody else or what do the assessors want to hear, you're setting yourself up for not necessarily failure, but a really rough time before we ever get there. This is a prime part of what we teach in our classes. Um, we teach checking your bags at the door, and we teach being the officer when you walk in and not thinking about the test and, and competing. So like I mentioned earlier in the in the show, I've, I've had my quote-unquote competitors in my classes, and it didn't bother me because I want to help them. I, I, I'm not afraid of giving away some secret because I know how hard I've worked. I know who I am. And it's not about competing with this person. It's about the greater good of the fire service. Cause when I walk in there, I'm, I'm battalion chief cashers or captain cashers or whatever the test is. That's what I am that day. And I'm not thinking about. So for example, when I would go to tests, literally being in the, in the test and I get a phone call, Hey man, I just saw you pull in the parking lot. You want to come hang out before we go in for our test? I'd say, brother, I appreciate that. But no, I'm going to kind of chill by myself. Because all they're going to do is feed that test mindset. Of, hey, man, did you study a lot? Are you ready? Do you think you're going to be good? What do you think you're going to ask us, man? And, no, just get out of the mindset. Um, and and that, that, again, takes away the whole competing thing. And, and so when you're preparing, you know, but at the same time, if you do choose to be with somebody else or, or a group of three of you or something, I wouldn't have more than three, number one. And number two, I would make sure that the people that I'm working with are, work their ass off. They're the kind of people that, that aren't going to uh, – I'm not going to hold them up. And they're not going to hold me back. you got to be with people that are going to bring a lot to the table with you. Personally, I never had a study partner ever. No, it's just me. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Yeah. I, yeah. I know, uh, and I've only done the one process from from, uh, from Antioch, my, my prior job. And uh, some of us studied together. It wasn't like it was a group, though, where we met at this time every time, you know. Uh, yeah. But there was a lot of – but but I also know there were people that like you or were they 
you know, focused on their thing and they had their mindset and they then they did what they did, right? And I, yeah. I don't think there's a one size fits all for that in any stretch there's of the not, imagination. There's not a there's not a one size fits all. Just a couple of things to consider is hey, don't don't hold up have people that are gonna come to you and not bring something to the table and work as hard as you. Um, but I, I didn't ever feel um, like they were competing, not because I was arrogant. I just didn't look at the test as a competition. I looked at it as a day at work. Yeah, it's a it's my first day on the job as a battalion chief. I'm going to go in and be a battalion chief. Yeah. And so, would you, as an officer driving to work as a company or chief officer, think to yourself while you're driving to work, okay, today's Tuesday, it's our first shift. I really hope that I look better than battalion five. No. I really hope I look better than engine twenties, captain. No. You're there to do a job. Just. Focus on the task in front of you that day during the process and, and do it from the position of a of mindset of a company officer, chief officer, whatever, what have you, and leave your bags at the door while you're doing it. It'd be yeah, fine. That's great advice. That's great advice. So uh, I know uh, if anybody wants to throw any other questions, uh, uh, Chief Castro's way, throw them in there. Otherwise, we're going to kind of roll into some of these uh, wrap-up questions here. Um, so first things first. Um, what's one mistake over the course of your career that you've made but learned from? When I took it personal, I took it. I took. I made it personal, and I and I took it personal, and I, I shouldn't have, and I regret that. And um, it's hard to get somebody back when you do that to them from a position of leadership. You, as a boss, whatever your rank is, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and he had a really good point. He said, "You know that that that." movie band of brothers uh major winners i think it was said hey don't ever put yourself in a position to take anything from your guys because you're in a you're in a, a role where you have authority don't abuse it and when you take it or make it personal in a position of authority it's not fair to the other person it's it's just it's bullying and you can't profess to not like uh recliner snipers or try and rehabilitate rehabilitate recliner snipers and then one of them snaps at you you, you kick them in the balls. You can't do that. You have to be above it, and you can't make it personal. Even if they do, you have to walk away, cool off, and, and recollect collect yourself and, and approach. But um, that's the, probably the biggest thing for me. All right. Uh, have you ever lost your passion for the fire service? And if you did, how did you get it back, and what keeps you passionate? I lost it twice. Um, I think in the course of a career, you're the average firefighter will go through burnout once every 10 years. So if you have a 30 year career, you'll probably go through three burnouts. It's a season. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't think it's all is lost. And Oh my God, it, it's a, it could be a million different things that cause the burnout. It could be personal stuff at home. It could be getting your ass kicked by recliner snipers. It could be going through a promotional test and not making the list. It could be a bad call with PTSD. There's a lot of reasons. So don't, freak out know it's a season and get help for me i allowed the recliner snipers above me i allowed my i allowed my bosses uh bad leadership above me to, to drive me crazy and um before the age of 48 years old i had two strokes before the age of 48 years old and it was because of stress it wasn't cardiac they, they put a they put a uh cardiac monitor in my chest for for two and a half years implanted that was monitoring my heart rate for two and a half years straight 24 hours a day not one afib not one arrhythmia they also did an angiogram uh, and did the whole cath lab thing no occlusions 
um, it was not cardiac related. It was stress related. It was called reversible cerebral vasospasm syndrome, which was basically stress induced um, spasming of your of your arteries in your brain that that mimics a stroke. It's, it does it does stop blood flow. There is ischemia, but it's not from a clot and it's not a bleed. But it mimics that, and that your blood vessels constrict because of stress, and then they release. So by the grace of God, I didn't have any permanent deficits, but it knocked me on my ass two times, four years apart. And it was because in both cases, I was stressed out and pissed at my bosses. The ideology in both cases, I was pissed off at my bosses, stressed out, and I allowed them to get to me enough to where I couldn't control my stress anymore. I was uh, drinking too much alcohol, which I didn't normally do drinking too much coffee, which I didn't normally do, drinking five-hour energy drinks, and pissed off all the hell. All the, And I was con- having chronic migraines and headaches at work. The day I retired, they went away. Now, in both cases, I had a four-month rehab. The, the strokes were four years apart. In both cases, I had a four-month rehab. And in both cases, I had to ask myself, do you really want to go back? Do you really want to go back to that environment? Um, and the answer, obviously, was yes on both counts. Uh, it took four months to rehab mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually with my wife. Um, and there was a lot of questions about, do I, do you want to re-expose yourself to this? And I, and I didn't blame those people. You're going to have bad bosses. You're going to have people with baggage. You're going to have snipers and bullies above your level. There's plenty of them. I allowed them to get to me too much. And I, I, I didn't trust God's timing and his plan. And, um, he flicked me on the forehead a couple times, and fortunately, I think he took inventory of my deficits. Hey, he's got Tourette's. He's Greek. He's an idiot. Let's just get his attention. So he got my attention twice, and so those are the two periods of my my career where I, I really was like, "Oh man, what am I doing?" So how so how how did you get it back? You just you you so during those four. Help, there, right? Well, number one, I, I I went to God and said, "God, I'm sorry for being prideful." Um, pride before a fall bible says and i was i was pissed off my bosses and thought i knew better and whether or not i did it doesn't matter because they were my bosses um and that was the first thing the second thing was mental rehab of a lot of rest um i literally wrote my second book during my rehab so that was like a mental rehab uh, of get learning i was writing like you know 50 minutes a day then then 20 minutes a day then half an hour a day then you know before you know it i was writing 12 hours a day when i came back um so there was a lot of that and, and humbling myself and realigning my priorities with my wife and my daughters and um, all that. It's a whole process, and that's kind of how I got it back. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go back healthy. I'm going to finish strong. And um, I didn't want to rob myself of the joy of the job. It was, it was me. Yes, were they, were they terrible bosses? Absolutely, um, on all counts and by many other people's experiences. But it was on me to have allowed it to affect me the way I did. So I had to get myself out of it. And to me, I didn't want to lose the fire service um, before I was ready. And for me, the, the age was 50 years old. In California, at least, you can retire at 50 years old. And, the, and I was 48. And I was like, I, I got two years. I can do two more years. I can do this. So, Yeah. Uh, audience question. Jay Vandenberg's asking, uh, 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 Chief, what, what do you think the best position in the fire service is and why? battalion chief and i'll tell you why because um i was an engineer i was a firefighter engineer captain and battalion chief and 
every rank we say what oh, i love being a firefighter best job in the fire service engineer i love driving the rig i love freaking that next level senior man kind of thing officer i have in charge of my crew it's great i don't have not a chief i don't have to deal with management go down to headquarters battalion chief you know what phenomenal you get to be your own chief for a day or two and you get to mentor people you're lead it's the first level where you're leading other leaders and you can develop leaders above that level crickets you never hear oh it's the best job i've never seen somebody self-demote from battalion chief but i've seen plenty of people self-demote from assistant chief division chief deputy chief and fire chief um because it is because as you go up the chain it's more bureaucratic and less operational it's more about politics and less about people and the battalion chief to me is the pinnacle of that where you get to i mean they, they let me these these people were <laughs> actually let me run a battalion 10 times a month it was unbelievable i had i had my own vehicle i had 40 firefighters i had 11 companies i had a cell phone and i had all the support i ever needed in the world logistically in the and and, and i got to just do what i was doing in 1972 with my tonka trucks but actual size and that's how it felt every single freaking day and the the but even as good as that was people would say well, well didn't you miss going in the fires as a company officer Okay, sure, a little bit. But you know what I got more joy out of? Watching them kick ass from the sidelines. Because to me, I was now the head coach. I put the headset on. I'm the head coach. I'm calling the plays. But where does a good head coach earn their money? Not on Sunday, before the kickoff. Getting the team ready. Watching game film. Picking the right people. Training them, mentoring them, growing them, and building that team that can execute the game plan. And then you tweak and adjust for the particular team you're going to face this sunday that team might be a commercial structure fire that team might be a apartment fire might be a house fire might be a mayday but you've gotten them ready and i got such immense joy from that feeling of watching them on el camino on watching them on these fires and just kick ass and see them high five each other and see them just feel the sense of joy of teamwork that to me was better than me being on a nozzle any day of the week that was just me though so that that's my answer all right i love it uh, if you wanted to give someone a sense of how fire service culture should work by meeting one person, uh, who would it be? Uh, with us, gone, anyone, anyone in the history of the fire service? Um, definitely Brunacini. Um, he embodied that tradition, that old school um, grandpa have a cup of coffee, sit at his feet and soak up his wisdom. Um, and we don't have that anymore, not because they're not there they've just retired you have to go to fdic to 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 talk to john norman um to talk to you know to uh, a lot of the guys we've talked about tonight um um and so but they used to be in the firehouses you know the the brunos of the world used to be everywhere and they're never and now they're kind of nowhere and they're not even chiefs anymore and um it's sad to be because they Brunacini embodied the, leader, the the culture because he was a big family person. Both of his. So at this point, we actually lost Chief Castro's technical issues. Tried to get him back for you know a couple minutes, but uh, it was not going to be the case. Uh, but you know, again, the the, the impact that uh, Chief Brunacini made on the fire service. Uh, to many of us, we don't even know uh, a lot of firefighters that that really understand customer service and treating people right and and being nice. You know, one of the other uh, things that he would would say was 
You know, don't disqualify someone with your qualifications. Uh, just invaluable uh, to who we are as firefighters and as as a as a service. So um, that's probably way worse than than Chief Castros would 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 speak of Brunacini from his perspective. But uh, he was really happy to come on. Uh, it was a really fun show, and uh, he was glad to to join us. So. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening. Check us out on outlierfirefighters.com, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Remember, excellence may be a rarity, but you are not alone.